So I'm not going to say like, welcome to the show or anything like that, because you're just a host. So as soon as I'm done reading my intro, you just start talking. Wow, man, what a day. Mm -hmm. Okay, <laughs> let's do it. Let's take this thing. Let's take this mother over. This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, I am joined by Reed Dent Solo oh, yeah. to discuss deconstruction and reconstruction and address some of the feedback we've received since our previous conversation. Solo Reed Dent. Han Solo Reed Dent. <laughs> that is a compliment that I am not worthy of. A scoundrel, really. Hey, hey there. And... <laughs> And wow, so I double-checked this with you, but I, I'm pretty sure that this is the first Bema episode without Marty. Yeah, Marty Marty is traveling, uh, visiting some other Bema listeners, but the show must go on, as they say. It, so, it must. And here so, we, here yeah, we are. Man, this is, this is awesome. A little, a little nervous um, because we don't have Marty to just anchor us. Reed, you are on an unsustainable trajectory here because the first time you were on, you were a guest. Yes. And then the second time you became a host. Yes. And now you're the first person uh, to be on without Marty. Right. Well, that's not an unsustainable trajectory because the next step is just we get rid of Marty altogether. And <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's happening. No, but it's not going to happen. Also, also an unsustainable trajectory. Every time you've been on, we have published the longest episode we've ever published we're gonna try not to do that today i i told marty i was like i really have to drop this label of long-winded before it really gains a head of steam because i i'm not i'm not i don't have a habit of being terribly long-winded all the time i don't know what it is about bema that brings it out of me but anyway your your sermons are i feel like uh i mean they're not short necessarily, no they're not but short they do feel succinct so yeah I don't know. I mean, it's it's like I think maybe we're just tackling really ambitious topics. <laughs> maybe, yeah, or maybe I just need to, yeah, I I need to be more filtered about what maybe people actually are interested in hearing about or not. I don't know. Things are interesting to me at least, but anyway, uh, without further ado, let's uh, let's get into it. So last week, um, we or not last well, week, I guess. Sorry, about, about the last time we ago. recorded <laughs> about two months ago. Time gets weird. You guys have talked about this before when you record things ahead of time. But uh, the last time we talked, uh, we began a conversation about deconstruction. We talked about the Dr. Seuss building and the scaffolding. Um, we talked about the need for doing that in community. Um, and since then, we've gotten a little bit of feedback from people uh, and a few questions here and there. And so I think I just wanted to take this time to – Maybe respond to a few of those things. Um, the the question of reconstruction has come up, um, which I cannot – I mean that's like a lifetime of uh, faithfulness to reconstruct. Um, but talk a little bit about uh, maybe what it looks like positively in practice um, to not just be deconstructing but to actually do something constructive as well. Uh, so I think that's where we're going to go today. Yeah, and I think maybe I'll say if for some reason you stumbled into this episode – and have not listened to any other part of Bema. There's mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of stuff going on specifically for this conversation. Right. Um, the conversation more or less started in episode two thirty one, but we're also building uh, a lot of assumptions about how much you've listened to. So if you 
haven't listened to the first about 200 episodes of Bama, um, <laughs> maybe what we're going to say is not going to make a ton of sense. Maybe you were looking for deconstruction or reconstruction stuff and you stumbled into this and it's like, well, okay, so maybe check out the rest of the podcast, but you're also welcome to listen. So that's a great point. Here we go. Yeah. So when we say deconstruction, just really succinctly, like what we are talking about is this idea of pulling apart uh, the various aspects of something, in this case, uh, what we believe about God or the way that we uh, interpret the Bible and uh, how we understand the Bible and all that kind of stuff. We, we pull apart the different pieces and we look at them kind of independently and uh, just kind of assess, analyze, evaluate them apart from the whole. And then we see once once we've kind of taken a closer look, how does it fit back together uh, with the whole? Or we also talked about this uh, analogy of pruning. So instead of just deconstructing, it, it's sort of like cutting away the parts of our faith uh, that have sort of become unworkable or unlivable, or they just don't make any sense to us, um, pruning them back uh, so that more fruit can grow in the parts that are actually vibrant and healthy. So that's kind of what we're talking about. Um, and I got a question uh, through an email where somebody was asking, and the way that they phrased it just kind of caught me. They said, is it okay to hold a faith that is less detailed than I was accustomed to? Uh, or maybe another way of asking that is, is it okay to hold my faith less rigidly or with a gra- a grasp that's like a little looser? Um, and just talking about be- faith as a detailed thing, uh, my thought when I read that question was, well, detailed and specific in what way? And when we say faith, like, what do we mean here? And I think some of us, when we think of a detailed faith, we're, we're thinking about like a statement of belief, right? That's on a website uh, that kind of lists out the specific things that we affirm. Or we're talking about a catechism. If you come from uh, lines of faith that use a catechism, you know, that's like 100 pages long, that has a lot of details. And when we're, I, I, I suspect that maybe when we ask, is it okay to hold to a faith that's not a catechism 100 pages long, uh, maybe that's kind of what we're getting at. Um, which, which then for me is, is a way of, uh, there's a, there's a question I want to ask in response to that. And that is, are we assuming that faith is simply what we think or understand about God? Like, is that faith? Or maybe another question I would have is, uh, when we say faith, do some of us mean like what we actually mean is not just those catechisms and statements of belief themselves, but our relationship to those things. So, um, like, does it does having faith mean that I agree with statements of belief? And then I also just wonder, like, to what extent do I have to agree with 90 percent of it or 75 percent or just 51 percent? And then I, quote unquote, have faith um, or do I have to like do I have to memorize those things to have faith? Or maybe this is a big one for a lot of people. Do I have to feel a certain way about them? So like to have faith is to be confident of these different statements of belief or doctrines, or do I have to be uh, on fire about them? If you grew up in 90s evangelical Christianity like I did, then you're maybe familiar with the catchphrase of being on fire. Mm, um, yes. You know, do, do you know that, Brent? Did yeah, you have a history with that? Absolutely. Totally. Uh, and so then it's like if we see faith as the way I feel about different ideas about God, then one thing that we can notice is 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 God the object of our faith anymore, or is that statement of belief the object of our faith? Uh, and and I'm not 
I'm not entirely opposed to articulating specifics of what we believe and what we are assured of. I'm really not against that kind of stuff. But uh, I think about Abraham and who, you know, we call the father of the faith. And I wonder, would Abraham, would he understand our sort of, our, if he went to a website and saw like a statement of belief would he understand that as faith? Or if you put a catechism in Abraham's hand, like, would he know what to do with it? Uh, and again, I'm really into diving into the particulars about how things are and what they mean. And I think there's such a huge range of what that could potentially mean, because... Yeah, what do you mean? Well, so my church, like when you want to become a quote unquote member, mm-hmm. which even that word um, is not necessarily... It's kind of the word that we use just because we feel like people will know what it means, mm-hmm. but it's not necessarily how we feel about like there's no contract or like we do we could we do call it a covenant sort of okay, but it's like okay there there's nothing binding about it. It's not like you can't leave the church mm-hmm. but it's about it's about a four hour class where we go through and say, here's all the things we believe mm-hmm. and then we break it down into here are the things where it's like this is what we believe no questions asked. Mm -hmm. And then here's some stuff that we don't really care whether you believe this way or that way, but here's how we're going to engage it in this church to be as open as possible to people. Um, Here's some stuff that we just don't uh, like. There's just a kind of a range of, of levels, but it's like the whole thing is a four hour class, which really isn't that lengthy of a study time <laughs> no. versus when I was in third grade and my family was converting to Catholicism. I think I spent a year like going through and learning the Catholic catechism. Yeah. And maybe that would be different as an adult. Maybe it would be not quite as lengthy because mm-hmm. in a lot of cases I was learning things for the first time or, or learning about subjects for the first time. But like the word catechism and just the idea of like having a, um, a detailed view of the faith, like, the level of detail there for different listeners from different traditions is going to be very different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and and again, I think that's that's good. Uh, that can, uh, you know, I don't think it's like a good, I don't think we should use it as a gatekeeper for like who's in and out of the community. And I think sometimes those statements of belief operate just kind of in effect as that. Like I go, if I'm church shopping and I go around and I look at the website, you know, it's like, okay, well, they said this particular thing about the nature of the Holy Spirit, and I don't agree, and so I'm out. Like, I'm not even going to investigate, you know. I don't know that that's the best way of doing it. Um, but anyways, so, so I, th- I think that it's still – it's it's serious. It's important work to try to suss those things out. Um, it's the work of doctrine and creed. Uh, it's also the work of deconstruction. Um, that's a part of that. I, I'm just not sure that it's faith. And I'm probably not saying anything new here to people. Um, but I, I don't know that it's the healthiest thing for us to refer to as faith. And and I get that the word faith, it's come to be used popularly as meaning just like, it's a, it's another way of talking about a religion, a faith, the Christian faith the Muslim faith or uh, whatever. Um, And so um, in that sense, a faith can be like, yes, it can be a brand of Christianity that's less detailed or less dogmatic or whatever, and that's fine. But the danger is that the word faith in Christianity also really does specifically mean something. It's not just a broad category. It means the act of trusting God, uh, which is not the same as 
the specific formulations that we make about God and what God is like. And so if we let that word faith come just to mean what we think about God, then uh, it, it doesn't really matter who you are, whether you're like a deconstructionist or whether you're like completely conservative or whatever, uh, there is a danger that some kind of idolatry is likely to creep in as as faith kind of just purely becomes this thought experiment. Um, and I wanted to say one other thing about Abraham, Abraham too, because I, I think it's not – I doubt that Abraham didn't wrestle with questions about God. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing he didn't really fuss over, you know, the nature of the Trinity or he wasn't trying to like detail out the steps of soteriology. But I mean he might have had his own uh, intellectual puzzles and hangups about God. Uh, but what he ultimately decided about God – so I just imagine Abraham like walking down the road to the place that God was going to show him. And as he puts one foot in front of the other on the way to whatever land it was that God was going to show him – and as he's walking away from the house uh, and the gods of his father, what he decided about God on that journey was not his faith. The walking itself was his faith. Um, so that that brings me to then a word of caution just about our deconstruction. Uh, deconstruction isn't aimed at making things less detailed simply for the sake of simplicity or because we don't want to worry about all of the complications and we just wish things were so much simpler than they are like that, that I don't think that's the best uh, attitude to start deconstruction with. I think what it ought to be about is dealing with the obstructions that make faith unlivable for us. The things that make it uh, impossible to, to know what to do with, or that seem to be pushing us in a direction that the spirit within us is saying, no, that's not right. Like that's not actually what God is about. Um, so that, that to me is like the best case for deconstruction, move the obstructions out of the way that make it really hard to live out our faith in the way that Jesus would be calling us to, uh, because at the end of the day, if all we've done, uh, is replaced one particular set of ideas with another. And even if, um, even if that new set of ideas is less detailed or held less rigidly, uh, if all we've done is replaced one set of ideas with another, but we haven't gotten to a place where we are responding more out of trust to God and his promises, like, like Abraham, putting one foot in front of the other, actually orienting, orienting our actual lives and our actions around what God is telling us and what he's asking of us. Uh, if we haven't done that, then I don't know that we've really acquired any kind of faith. I think we've just kind of gotten smarter. Um, and I, I think it's important to remember then that the scaffolding, whatever scaffolding we're talking about, to go back to that metaphor from the last time, uh, whether it's conservative or progressive, Western, Eastern, it's still just scaffolding. Worldviews, doctrines, creeds, dogma, hermeneutics, opinions, all of that, they're, they're scaffolding, which is not bad again, um, but it's also not the thing. Um, and so part of the thing about the deconstruction question, and this is like just a, a word of uh, caution and encouragement to folks who maybe – the kind of folks who tend to listen to this podcast is that while we can – while deconstruction can do a lot – toward taking apart different facets of belief. It can do a lot towards examining them apart from the whole. Um, it can do all that while still never touching the underlying assumption that faith is a matter of ideas that we agree with. That is an underlying assumption that 
we have to get over. Um, and so then what ends up is that we just now have so-and-so's ideas instead of someone else's. And so this maybe gets Brent in a little bit into, I don't know if I would call it reconstruction, but rather just a refocusing of what it means to have faith. Uh, and that is, it, it is about trust and it's about a lived trust. That's, I mean, you know, the whole Bema thing, trust the story means don't just have the right ideas about the story, but get the right ideas about the story as best you can and then live out of that. Yeah. If your faith is not inspiring you to actually get up and walk the path, right? what is it? Yeah. Yeah. Because that doesn't seem like, it doesn't seem like faith. Right. It doesn't seem like you actually have the faith if it if it's not actually inspiring you to action. Right. I mean, so the, the scripture says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Uh, so not so Abraham believed God, not Abraham believed in God or not Abraham believed X about God. Abraham, he had an experience with God. He received a promise and he believed him. And when he believed, he up he upheaved his whole life out of trust in that God and in that promise. And and the upheaved his whole life part here is that's the key part that I'm trying to like home in on and say, this is what we should not lose sight of as we do all of our uh, deconstructing. And we've talked a lot about Abraham way back in session one, like episodes, I don't know, like 10, 11, 12, 13, somewhere in there. And like, we've talked about this idea of faith and we've talked about the fact that Abraham didn't get it all the way right. when he when he did this like his faith was not oh i have a complete and full understanding of what god wants me to do it is i understand that god is calling me to something and i'm going to go there even though i don't know how it's going to work out yet mm-hmm. or how i don't know exactly the role i'm supposed to play i'm going to make mistakes i'm going to misunderstand what god is doing but i i still have i i still believe god and i'm still going to walk this path even when Things go wrong. Yeah, I mean, that's such a good reminder because now 220 some odd episodes later, uh, and it's not that you guys are just, you know, always like, it's not that we have been blindly diving into just deconstructing questions. I mean, that's one of the things I love about Bema is that there is a consistent like challenge and reassurance to, to, to actually follow, to live a life of faithfulness. But, you know, maybe it's just a good reminder as we're, we're sort of stepping back at a bird's eye level and talking about deconstruction, you know, as a concept, which is what this podcast has been doing in practice. It's just good to remember, uh, you know, that, that faith is still about living, putting one foot in front of the other. Um, okay. So there was another question, uh, that somebody brought up on one of the online forums, um, relating to the last episode that we did. Uh, and one of the last things that I was talking about in that episode was just encouraging people, uh, to, to do the Bema thing, to do the deconstruction thing in whatever various online circles that we have, but saying that that's not really like a great substitute for having somebody in the flesh and blood who can, who knows you, who can look you in the eye uh, and, and encourage you and also challenge you. Um, and, and somebody just pointed out, uh, yeah, that's, that's good. But honestly, it's been, it's been really hard for some of us to find a loving community uh, in which to do this process because there's something about the nature of it that just sometimes brings out the worst in people. It brings out combativeness. Um, it brings out alienation. 
Um, and so they said, you know, I've, I've encountered people who are either on the one hand disinterested, like they just don't care about these questions that matter a lot to me, um, or people are just getting upset and angry when I bring up my, my thoughts and my questions, um, which I, I wanted to talk about that a little bit because uh, as I, I think probably a lot of us have had that experience in some shape or form. I mean, I know that even I, like as a pastor who is trying to lead people through these things, like sometimes I encounter criticism, you know, pushback, it can be alienating. Um, so just to, to one, acknowledge, if I didn't acknowledge it well enough last time, that that yes, I know that it is hard. Um, if you're not already immersed in a community where the spirit of the thing is like uh, charitable, generous orthodoxy, to use the phrase, uh, then it can be really hard to to find that. And I understand totally that there are like there's a, a hesitation or an anxiety about, OK, when do I bring up that I have this question? Like I remember one time I was <laughs> I was talking with my brother uh, who has been a part of a Baptist church for a long time. He lives in the south and we were out late one night just sitting in his backyard looking up at the moon talking and and like there there was this silence for a second and it was like this pregnant kind of silence where it really seemed like he was wanting to say something. Uh, and then just sort of nervously, he was like, so, so, so can I just, can I ask you something? And I said, yeah. And he said, do you think, and you could hear like the, the like hesitation in his voice, like, oh my gosh, is, am I going to be like scolded for even asking? But he was like, do you, do you think that you can believe that the world wasn't created in like seven literal 24 hour days and still be a Christian? And, you know, we had that conversation. I was like, well, yeah, of course I believe that. And there was such relief that came over him. But you can just – you know what it's like to bring it up and then have somebody be like, wait, what are you doing? Why would you even ask that? Like that's not OK to even ask, you know. Um, so one, to just acknowledge, I know it's hard. Um, but uh, in in the meantime – and I think we should – but we should pursue – like we should have – we should try to have the courage and the vulnerability to like – explore those limits and boundaries with people that we've developed relationships with to keep pursuing it. Um, and, and I suggested to the person on the online forum, the online forum, we're talking about the Slack, the Slack. Sorry. I, we actually, well, we actually convinced Reed to join the Baymoss Slack. So that was as far as I've gone. Uh, was a beautiful that was as experience. far as I've, I still don't have a, a Twitter or anything else, but man, I'm, I'm, I'm so nervous, Brent, just getting on that Slack. I just don't know what to do with these online things. Anyway, that's fine. It's he it's healthy to have limits. You don't have to okay. have everything. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so for those of us who are having a hard time finding community, um, I suggest two postures. One, a posture of gratitude, meaning we really can and we really should be thankful for what we have in things like Bema. Um, and we should keep soaking up all the goodness and beauty and truth that we can hear for as long as we can. Like, I do not mean to communicate in any way that we should somehow despise or shun or see it as like just something we ought to try to move away from or that it's inferior or whatever. I don't mean to communicate that at all. We really should be grateful for it. Um, it is obviously, I mean, in a way that I didn't even realize, but when I got on the Slack, I was like, oh, this is like a safe haven for people. And that's a good thing. Um, and the second posture that I encourage people to is just a posture of love, meaning uh, I would encourage all of us to uh, – and I know this maybe sounds a little cheesy, but like to be the community that we hope to find even as we're still looking for it, um, which again I know is 
It can be exhausting and painful. Uh, but, but as far as it depends on us, my encouragement is let's, let's continue trying to, I, I mentioned the context of love and mutual friendship as the place for theological investigation. Let's keep trying to uh, create that um, where, where we can. And I even wondered maybe specifically, we don't even start explicitly with like, well, I'm creating this friendship or these relationships so that we can do the theological investigation. Like maybe, maybe it's enough for us just to carry the love of Christ within us, to let it radiate out towards others, uh, to, to set a context of love and mutual friendship just in and of itself, and then see what that invites out in other people. Um, because I, I think that that spirit can go a long way if we decide to create it rather than just wait for somebody else to offer it to us. Um, yeah. And, and for, for those who deal with like disinterested people who are like, yeah, whatever, like, I don't really care about, you know, uh, Abram and the genealogy and whatever, and all those kinds of things don't really matter to me. Okay. That's okay. Not everybody has to be interested in the same things that we are all interested in. Um, I think the best thing is whatever that does for your faith, like for your life in God, uh, let it come fully out. Let the spirit bring us fully to life. Like the Irenaeus said, the glory of God is the human being fully alive. So as we go through the questions and that brings us to life, as God brings us to life through that, let that just become apparent as we live an abundant life in the midst of people who are disinterested. And, you know, maybe they'll they'll see something uh, in their boredom or in their miserliness or whatever that will cause them to be like, oh, what is it about these these questions? And maybe they will develop an interest. And if they don't, it's okay. Um, and as for people, and this is maybe the bigger one, some of us have encountered anger in the people that we have talked to, like we bring it up to our parents and they get mad, or we bring it up to a friend in the church and then suddenly they don't want to be our friend anymore. Or even a spouse. Or a sp- yeah. Yes. Man, oh, it's got to be so hard. I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I've talked to many, many listeners who are like, you know what, I'm, I'm <sighs> blazing through your podcast and it's changed my life and my wife just won't listen to it. She doesn't want to engage. It's like, oh, oof. Yeah. Okay. No, that's that's so hard. Uh, but for people who do get angry, um, so my wife's a therapist, and she pointed out to me that anger tends to be a defensive emotion. And so when anger comes out, it means usually that somebody is protecting something. Um, and so my encouragement uh, is instead of us getting defensive or really upset, like maybe – we can try to be compassionate towards people who get angry when we talk about these new ideas because we can recognize it's not me that they're despising, but rather we've touched something and there's some place maybe of fear that they're coming from within themselves. And again, we're not better than them. Like we all come from places of fear in various ways. Um, but to recognize that and to be compassionate towards them and then just let our love for them. And then <laughs> I use the phrase, our cheery Chestertonian mirth. You know, Chesterton was, he was a prophet of mirth. He was very glad and jovial and good humored. And, and, and let just a persistent spirit of charity uh, work out towards them instead of meeting them with defensiveness and anger. Uh, and, and sometimes, man, that, is, that spirit is amazing for bringing down defenses and it can be a magnet for drawing out of people like maybe maybe they've had the same question and they've just been afraid and that's why their anger is getting defensive. 
they're feeling something as exposed, but but maybe they'll be like, wait, like I thought I was the only one who had this question, you know? Like if I were to bring that up to my brother, he'd be like, I, I thought I was the only one. I'm like, no, I totally thought about that before, you know? And and we can go through that together. So anyway, um, just just a, a few thoughts about dealing with relationships in the midst of what this deconstructive process can, you know, just the complications that it can bring up. Um. Yeah, can uh, uh, this this segues actually into a thought that I've had about a lot about families, um, and about specifically parents and parents who are listening to this podcast or younger, like coming of age uh, people who uh, are concerned about how this might affect relationships with parents. Um, I've been talking to people about this, like my wife and I spent a few weeks in New Mexico doing like some counseling with parents who are like eagerly and genuinely and earnestly concerned to like raise their kids with a strong faith. <laughs> so I'm thinking of this from like a wedding photographer perspective, like okay. a destination wedding. I go to New Mexico to shoot a wedding. Are you doing destination counseling? Uh, yeah, kind of. There's a, there's a camp. Well, there's a camp there uh, that we've had a relationship with for a long time and they have a family camp um, program where it's really cool. Families can bring their like all of them together for like a week long basically retreat and they do outdoor adventure activities in the mountains and then there's also an emphasis on um, faith and building the faith of your family together. It's it's a really mm. great thing. Yeah. Um, so we volunteered as that to offer counseling and we talked to parents who are like, I mean, I get it. Like we're afraid for our kids that like they're going to grow up and like not care about God, right? Um, but I want to say this. Your responsibility as a parent, I believe, is is not to get – like by the time your kid turns 18, they better reach a point where they never have another question, never have another doubt, never have a confusion. Like I, I don't believe that's the case because here's the thing. I'm a campus minister and I have met with plenty of college students who like knew every answer right? And they memorized every verse and they did all the VBSs and they were the most like influential kid in their youth group in high school. Uh, And by all, like by some standards, they would say, wow, the parents really did their job raising them right. But they, they were taught those things with such a particular posture that they didn't feel like they didn't know what to do when the cognitive dissonance set in, you know? And suddenly they were introduced to questions in college or difficulties in the world that they didn't know about and, and, they, and then the faith can really easily crumble even if you know every answer. Uh, and so as a parent, I, I just want to encourage like deconstruction. It's a part of our faith. It's, a, it's like there is a biblical precedent for this, for this, right? So if our job is to train up our kids in wisdom, like you have Proverbs wisdom, right? This is like this is the way the world works. And if you do this, then this will happen. If you're good, then good things will happen. Um, you know, and the righteous will live long and God will make your path straight. And that's like what we kind of envision for our kids. And that's what we should. We should tell them like the world has a structure and a logic to it. Like we shouldn't just start our kids by saying, you know what? Everything's meaningless. Do what you want. Uh, but then Ecclesiastes does come in with another voice in that conversation that is a deconstructive kind of thing. That's like, well, actually, the, the race doesn't always go to the swift. And the battle doesn't always go to the strong. And, you know, you say, set your, uh, you know, set your heart on the Lord and he will make your path straight. But Ecclesiastes says, who can make straight what God has made crooked, right? And everybody goes through that. And what do I want to encourage families with uh, is 
not just to teach your kids all the right answers, but to teach them with a spirit of humility and love and charity so that when they encounter that ecclesiastical kind of crisis, they can come and talk to you about it. And there is an open space for like uh, for pursuing those questions together. That makes me think of the proverb, like train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. Mm -hmm. And I, I am wondering, like jumping back to the beginning part of our conversation, if people read that verse and think train up a child in a specific doctrinal statement. And when they're old, Mm. they'll believe all the, all the same things. Right. No, but that's, that's actually not what happens, right? Like, uh, and this is just anecdotal. This is not scientific data, but in my experience, the kids who have clung the tightest to those statements, and again, the statements are not bad, but who have clung the tightest and who have thought this is faith, to know this in this particular way, to be able to articulate the finer points of it in this particular way, that is faith. They are the ones who end up falling the hardest because we have all these experiences like we talked about last time, cognitive dissonance or new information, or we have trauma that comes in, or you know, we just have uh, pastors who taught us bad things about the Bible and God. Like Those things happen, and then they don't have any way of uh, dealing or reconciling with that. It's either – it's like a totally binary, like take it or leave it, those are your options kind of thing. And if all you had was the book of Proverbs, it might be easy to think that wisdom is just about knowing the right way and the take it or leave it kind of thing. But that's why we have to consider things like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes together. Like I heard that wisdom is the ability to hold two opposing ideas in your mind at the same time, right? Uh, And that's why we have all these wisdom books showing us the way. Um, And so parents, here's what's going to happen. People, human beings, here's what happens. We start our lives in a state of innocence. Uh, We're naive. We're sentimental. We have certainty about our faith, right? We, we know the way that things work and nothing has disabused us of that. Uh, sometimes the uglier parts of this, it can be like a, there, there can be a, like an anti-intellectualism that comes in, right? Because, well, no, that, that can't actually be like a complicated answer to this because my experience tells me that like everything goes exactly the way I think it should go. That's part of being young. That's okay. That's not bad. Then we, 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 we get what we call experience. We move from innocence to experience where something comes along and just kind of messes with the way we thought things were. And this is where then we lead to questioning. We lead to doubting um, the uglier parts of this when they become calcified can become cynicism, right? Uh, and this is like me in my 20s, um, just learning new things and being like, yeah, but is that how it really works? Uh, and now – what happens after that is you move back into a state of innocence, but it's this different, uh, differently colored, differently tenored like state of innocence on the far side of experience. Like another way that I've heard wisdom described is innocence regained on the far side of experience, right? Where dis- like when we've wrestled with the questions, and this is where I kind of find myself now in my later 30s, like having gone through a lot of these questions and tried to reconcile them with an experience of the world. Um, <clears throat> my, I'm not certain about things anymore, but I am assured, right? Certainty gives way to assurance. And the doubts that I had, like I certainly doubt certain things about like the way people, you know, assume or uh, proclaim things are. I, I, I doubt some of that. But my doubts about God have more become like a reverence for mystery on this is the, the far side innocence. 
Um, and, and that cynicism that I had uh, when, when I was in my stage of experience, uh, it, it gives way to like a conviction and an honesty, right? Like I, I now know what I hold. I hold it honestly, not knowing every answer, not having every defense, but I have thought about those things and this is still what I believe, right? So there's a, there's a famous anecdote about a philosopher who at the end of his life said, I see now that I can know nothing, right? After he spent his whole life and it's like the more you learn, the less you know. It's one thing to say that as the philosopher who's lived his whole life asking the questions and staring bravely into the answers. It's another thing for the college freshman to say that, well, I can't know anything and to use that as an excuse to not have to do their homework, right? Because kind of nothing matters. So anyway, we we move from innocence to experience and hopefully back to innocence. And and as a parent and as a kid, like just be prepared that that stage of experience comes and it's good. It's right. It's normal that that happens. We just want our kids to be in a kind of relationship with us where uh, they will go through that stage of experience still with us, even as they've like moved away at home and all that. And I think most parents would think or be comfortable with the idea of like their children owning their own faith. Mm. Like you don't, I mean, maybe some parents are just like, Nope, I, I want to build the structure for you and you can live in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I want to be in control and like, definitely. But I think a lot of parents would rather their children come to a point where they really truly own their faith. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of have to go through that process to get to that point. For sure. Yeah. Um, and so I think, what we have to teach our kids about faith, because this happens, right? Kids come to college and their parents come and I meet with parents like who bring their kids for a college visit. They're going to be coming in a year. And they're like, you know, we didn't know if we should send our kid to a Christian college. Um, we had concerns about sending them to a secular college, a state school like the one that I work at, um, because we didn't want, you know, their their them to lose their faith or for their faith to be like attacked and then not having a way of defended it, of defending it. And what that kind of assumes is that faith is this possession. It's this thing that I keep in my job in life is I've gotten it to a certain point and now I just don't let anything happen to it. And I have to keep it static and I keep it on the shelf and I dust it off so it doesn't get too dirty. But really my job is to not let anything touch it. Um, but Frederick Buechner, he said, you know, we should probably think of faith more as a verb than a noun. And he said more as a process than a possession. And so – as parents, we ought to be teaching our kids faith is a process. It involves knowing things, certainly, um, but it's also about following in this way of Jesus, responding in faithfulness to to God uh, and set them up for that. And so it's less like, okay, make sure you don't encounter any dangerous ideas in college and more uh, how do we continue to like let that faith work itself out in love to the people around us as we go. I mean, I think about Galatians a lot. I think it's Galatians where, where Paul says, uh, the only thing that really counts is faith expressing itself through love. Like that's the kind of faith that we need to be homing in on, uh, even as we explore doctrines, creeds and all the rest. Uh, yeah, that that's Galatians five. Yeah. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Yeah. Which, which can have like a really, again, you can hold that in an anti-intellectual way, right? 
oh, don't ask, don't, don't worry about the questions. Like, don't worry, but none of that really matters. Like, we know what we know. We don't really have to like have a childlike faith, right? Is what we say. And just, and that's not what I'm saying. I'm not trying to take uh, an anti intellectual approach, but this is part of like that arc of innocence and experience and back to innocence is that on the early side, that can be really anti-intellectual to say, well, it doesn't really matter. Like, don't worry about the questions because you just got to, you just got to love. Right. Um, but then on the far side, it's like having considered all of that. And now with like, I have genuinely earned this sort of like understanding that we can't really know everything. And the more we know, the less we know. Uh, and yet, despite all that, what we fall back on is the love of God and in Christ. And then our call to just live that out. Like this. I was talking to some of my friends uh, from college who are some of the smartest people that I know. Uh, they're they're like they've done PhDs in like advanced computing parallel algorithms at like Wash Washington University, which is like a highly advanced university, and they've studied physics and math and like all of this kind of stuff. And like if anybody ever was capable of like you know going deeper and deeper and saying no, like we know all the inner workings and the quantum this and all that. Like it would be them. And yet both of them in the past few days have said, you know, over time, my faith has become more simple to me, uh, which it just it, uh, it it kind of blows my mind, but also is really reassuring to know that uh, even for the most intelligent, the most inquisitive of us, there there really is and maybe ought to be this arc where as we explore more and more the kernel of the faith gets distilled down more and more to, you know, the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself through love or the one who loves has like fulfilled the law, you know, love one another as I have loved you. Like we can really hold that with conviction and depth. And that doesn't just have to be sentimental, like question dodging. Yeah. And Paul's not talking about intellectualism at all. Like even looking at the context of this verse, like the beginning of the verse Mm-hmm. says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. Mm-hmm. He's the we've, we did six episodes on Galatians in session four. Mm-hmm. And Paul is wrestling or helping the Galatians wrestle through whether the Gentiles belong in their group and what they have to do. And it's like, look, it's not about the parts of the law that make you Jewish. You don't have to be Jewish mm-hmm. because of all of this work that has been done. The Gentiles can come in and be children of Abraham, not because they're circumcised like Abraham, but because they have faith like Abraham. So the, the context is crucial to understanding what Paul is talking about, faith expressing itself through love. Like, yeah, for sure. Oh, well, maybe I'll just do my best impersonation of Marty and say, well, Brett, that's pretty good stuff. Pretty good stuff. <laughs> uh, I think that probably can wrap it up for today. Um, I mean, there's still more notes to go through, but I think we'll leave it here from now for now. And still, if if there are further questions about this kind of stuff, um, you know, we're glad to uh, think about them and respond together uh, and just kind of keep going through this as an online community. Um, but maybe next time, who knows? I don't, I don't know the next time I'll be on, um, but we'll we'll move on to other things, uh, other ideas and have further conversations. But I think this has been good uh, for the past two episodes. I agree. But I think I have a few random thoughts that I want to throw at you. Okay, um, let's do it. So there's this podcast called You Have Permission. And it's kind of a, it's a deconstruction thing, but not so much focused on um, the Bible like we do in Bama, but more focused on topics and issues and whatnot. Okay. And let me tell you, I, I'm not saying that I recommend this podcast. <laughs> okay. Because 
no matter where you are uh, with what you believe, there will be something within this podcast, some topic that is discussed that's going to make you feel very uncomfortable, most likely. Oh, okay. I'd say half of the episodes make me feel very uncomfortable. Oh. But if you want to be exposed to different ideas about what conversations are going on out there in different circles of faith, and it's not like completely outside, like the the host is like, I think he considers himself a post-evangelical. Okay. Um, but I listened to several of the more like high level deconstruction idea podcasts. So specifically, uh, recently I listened to episode 62, 66, 75, and 108. Okay. So I have lots of ideas that have been kind of swirling in my head about this. So I want to, I want to throw a few of them out. So one of the things that we talked about, uh, was like, how do you, how do you deal with going through this in the midst of your community and your family and whatever else. And so there's this, first of all, like when you're in a particular community, uh, you have a particular set of language, you have particular experiences, Mm -hmm. you have kind of a localized cultural context, whether that's the context of your church, the context of perhaps the country you live in or whatever you have, Mm -hmm. you have these limits of what you can talk about and understand because of your own experiences and your own, like how you grew up. And then on top of that, we have these incentives to avoid wrestling with deconstruction. So, um, episode 75 of you have permission is, uh, part of a series called, I don't believe in that God where people, uh, prominent people who have gone through deconstruction and have sort of announced or whatever. So he's talking in this episode, to John Steingard, who is the lead singer of the band Hawk Nelson, a Christian band. And he was talking about how he started to wrestle with things and have thoughts and doubts and whatever very early on. But being part of a Christian band, he had the incentive not to wrestle with that stuff because what are people going to think of me? Will I be a part of this band? He has a financial incentive not to wrestle with it because am I going to be kicked out? Am I going to lose my job? Am I going to? So I think it's good to think about as you're trying to engage other people around you and people hesitate, like there are so many different things, like maybe your family is hostile to those ideas and you really love your family. And if you engage that too strongly, your family will alienate you. Mm -hmm. So I think it's good to recognize, um, the incentives that people might have for not engaging, like it might just, it might not be like, Oh, they're stubborn or, Oh, they don't care about God as much as I do or whatever. Like there are lots of different things that can underlie the reasons why people are unwilling to wrestle with that. So I don't know if you want to kind of respond to those realities. Yeah. So I have a, I have a, no, absolutely. Like I know that there has to be more than a couple pastors who listen to this podcast and who are introduced to new ideas and think, man, that's really compelling. Uh, that's really interesting. And they don't even necessarily have to agree with it all, but they feel like they can't even bring it up because as a pastor, your job is on the line suddenly, right? And if I say, well, I'm not sure about this doctrine or this, even what some people say is like an essential, the, the no, questions, no questions asked kind of thing. And so they have to keep quiet um, and, and it's – their fear is real. Like I totally understand that um, and that the the uh, maintaining status within the supporting community – that's a phrase that I got from Kenneth Bailey 
Um, and he's talking about that in the context of the parable of the Good Samaritan. But maintaining status is a powerful motivator uh, to <clears> – <throat> I mean it's fear-based. But it's a powerful motivator to keep going by the status quo uh, and to not dig into our honest questions. And to that, I think the the phenomenon of language actually does come into play. Like maybe an antidote to this uh, would be – to actually dig deeper into our language because <clears throat> excuse me we 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 kind of develop like an in language like a a set of terms that are acceptable to use uh within our various evangelical circles and, and we assume that everybody means the same thing when they say these various things so like faith for example or righteousness or justification or salvation or hell or whatever like we have all of these terms and <clears throat> they become an accepted set of terms uh and it's kind of like they just become a litmus test where you either like say them in the right order uh, so that I can still agree with you or feel comfortable. But maybe what I would encourage people to, uh, I heard this great statement at actually the camp that we were at that, that somebody said, don't ever say I disagree until you can say I understand. And, and then what mm, I would add is yeah. like, don't, don't assume you understand just because they used a certain word. And so don't be afraid, like in a spirit of charity to say, well, tell me what you mean by that. And maybe I don't even know what I mean by that when I say it. Like I think of the story of the Tower of Babel and how everybody was using one language, right? <clears throat> Which is not necessarily – I don't see that as primarily saying like, well, people literally only spoke one language. But rather like imperially, Babylon, et cetera, like – and we know how this works too, like in structures of power, like one of the ways you consolidate power is by having an accepted set of language, like an accepted set of terms. And so the whole world's using one and and, and then uh, – and I don't think that's a good thing um, and it creates a kind of conformity or uniformity that's not healthy and good. And then the counterpoint to the Babel story is like an Acts when uh, the apostles go out early and they're preaching and there's that thing, everybody heard them in their own language and their own tongue. Um, and there are various details as to why these stories actually line up with one another. They're, they're kind of uh, twins in the, uh, in the scriptural narrative. Um, but to me, it <clears throat> means everything that when they go out proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, suddenly it's diverse, right? In its language specifically. Uh, and so what, uh, one of the things I like to say is like the gospel has no native language. And so when we talk with people, let's dig into what we actually mean and not just stop at like the face value of the terms themselves. And if we can do that, we might find that what started as disagreement which is really just based out of fear, actually comes closer to a point of agreement than maybe we assumed. Uh, and at least if we don't fully agree, we will have the comfort of knowing like that we're disagreeing honestly uh, and in full light of what we actually think and not just based on this particular language uh, that has become acceptable in whatever various church circles. Yeah, I think of even the term deconstruction. Like if you walk up to somebody and say, yeah, you know, I've been deconstructing my faith. Like, what is the response to that versus walking up to that same person and saying, yeah, I'm wrestling with my faith, mm -hmm. which has a different tinge to it or walking up and saying, you know, I, I've really just felt this conviction and I want to go deeper with my faith. So I've been doing all of this study and I'm, I'm just really mm -hmm. like digging into it. It's like, mm -hmm. <laughs> like that last one, I feel like is going to get a whole lot of people very excited about what you're doing. But then if you, if you're doing the exact same thing, your process is 
completely the same, mm -hmm. but you call it deconstruction rather than going deeper with your faith, those, those same people are going to flip around and say, Oh, you are a heretic or you are, you've lost your faith or whatever. Right. Yeah. That's so right. That's the, right. The language just, you know, the assumptions that people make when you say particular words, even when you say God, yeah. Like if you were, if you refer to God as, um, as a spirit, or if you refer to God as the divine, or yes. if you refer to God as a father, or like all of these terms have so much baggage, so many assumptions that the people you're in conversation with will add to it without you realizing it and probably without them realizing it. Yeah. Like we just, we all have our own experiences and some, some language works better than others for communicating what we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I think, again, recognizing – well, first of all, being charitable to one another in our conversations and giving people the benefit of the doubt that like I don't actually fully understand you. Help me understand you more. Um, but also just recognizing, again, the limits of metaphor, of language. So when I say God is a father, I don't mean that God is actually a father – Right. There are ways in which God is like a father and ways in which he's actually not like a father at all. Uh, and so just as for that example, it's like, well, tell me what you're thinking of when you think of God as a father, you know, uh, and this is why. So people get hung up where it's like if we talk about God as a mother, you know, uh, and some people which get the Bible does, by the way. Yeah, for sure. Like there are feminine metaphors like a mother hen, you know, gets used in. Anyway, but people get really caught up because they're like, oh, gosh, God's not a female. You know, we can't talk about God in that way. And I'm like, well, that's not really the point to say God is female because do we think God is male, by the way? Like that God has like male physiology? Like certainly not. God is neither male nor female. But when we talk about various aspects of God, um, that's really the heart of what we're saying. And so let's not get hung up on, oh, gosh that person referred to God as she or as mother or as her. And now suddenly we're in different camps. Like if I stop there, then we're on other side, opposite sides of a line and we can no longer have a dialogue. But if despite my discomfort, I can have the courage and the charity to say, okay, well, tell me what you mean by that. It's like, oh, well, we talk about the way that God is nurturing, you know? Um, and we talk about the way that God sustains us, even like in a nursing kind of way, Oh, okay. Yeah, of course I agree with that. And of course it makes sense that there are like metaphorically that ties closer to the role of being a mother than a father. And so we're not really saying anything destructive, you know, or heretical. We're just using different words than maybe some of us are comfortable or accustomed to. And so again, got to be charitable, got to dig deeper and find out what people mean and maybe even find out what we ourselves mean, uh, which can be, can be scary, but also can be really liberating. Indeed. And with that, I think so that we don't continue this unsustainable trajectory of longer and longer episodes every time you're on read, I think we'll we'll end it there. The, I, like, the number of thoughts on this topic are basically endless, so I'm sure we will come back to it yeah. again, um, you know. And if people want to engage this uh, with Reed, like join the Baymoth Slack because he's there now amazing i'm there that's a that's actually it was so much more convenient just to say find me on the bama slack and that's the best way so it is find me there we'll keep talking it'll be great all right well if you want to get a hold of marty on twitter you can find him at marty solomon let him know how awesome or how terrible it was to have an episode without him <laughs> <laughs> he's had a couple episodes without me so i feel like it's only fair that i now have an episode without him so dude you know too true too yeah. true here here 
And then I'm on Twitter at EIBCB and, of course, reads on the Bama Slack, as are all of us, really. Uh, but then you can go to BamaDiscipleship.com, uh, check out uh, show notes, find out, find other episodes. If this is your first one, like, please go back and explore the, the previous stuff. Like, there's tons and tons of stuff that we want to talk about and wrestle with together. And uh, the Slack's a great community for that. We're, we're there to help people go through it. So thanks for joining us on the Bama Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. We did it. We did it, Brent. An episode without Martin.